Mornings like this morning, I wonder about the origins of this lectin, whether it's got some sort of nomadic gene because it seems to wander all over the place. Never quite know where you're going to find it, but here it is. Let me, uh, just before I start this morning, uh, say thank you so much to those of you who have uh, taken on board the support for that cause that I was talking about last week. If we can just pop the first slide up there, Ivan, the... MAF Ride for Fuel, which is coming up uh, in just, gosh, five weeks or six weeks or so now, um, the opportunity that I have to join the team that we've been part of for the past few years, riding around the countryside, raising money for Mission Aviation Fellowship. I'll see if I can get you the next slide. South Coast Dreaming is the... Um, South Coast Torture probably is actually a better description, <coughs> pardon me, where for four days... We're going to be trundling around uh, in that part of the world uh, together uh, raising money for Mission Aviation Fellowship, which, as I explained last week, is an organisation that flies aeroplanes in some of the most interesting, some of the most difficult, even some of the most remote parts of the world. Something in the order of 100 and... What have we got there? 135 aircraft at the moment serving in 25 countries and flying to more destinations than any other airline in the world. How about that? MAF lands on more airstrips than the next largest carrier in the world, whoever that might be. And some of those airstrips, as you might imagine, are very, very difficult airstrips to fly in and out of. Some of them that go uphill, some of them that go downhill, and as I said last week, some of them that actually go around corners too, believe it or not. Airstrips which actually supply the needs of some very, very remote communities. One of the stories that I was told by some of the MAF pilots a few years ago was of an occasion where they had a circuit that they would fly in the southern highlands and unfortunately uh, as they were flying on this particular occasion some rascals, some criminals decided that they would take advantage of the air, airliner, uh, of the plane. They boarded the plane. As the plane was flying around, picking up passengers, dropping off passengers, they would collect <coughs> a little bit of money from the passengers to help pay for their fares. At the end of the journey, the rascals held up the plane. Uh, when it landed, forced it to taxi back down to the end of the runway, where it normally would go when it was going to take off, robbed it, and then disappeared into the jungle. And so the MAF administration said, well, we're just not going to fly into that place anymore. It's just not a safe place to fly. And, of course, the local community was up in arms. How are we going to find uh, the resources, the help that we need? And so for uh, some months, the only way they could get supplies in and out, the only way they could get someone who was ill in or out was by foot. And it was a couple of days of, of trudging through some pretty treacherous kind of country to do that. And eventually MAF revisited that decision and said, well, we'll have a look at coming back there, but we'll need to do a reconnoitre flight first. And this is the story that these guys told. They said, we flew into the airstrip. Now, normally what would happen in an airstrip like that, they'll try and overfly it first, just to make sure that there are no people or pigs on the airstrip, because people and pigs can be a little bit detrimental to an aeroplane, and vice versa, I guess you might say. <laughs> and then they came and landed... And as they were not carrying any passengers, they immediately taxied back to the place where they were going to take off. And the village that was up the other end of the airstrip thought, oh no, the plane's been hijacked again, just like it had been the last time. We're not going to let this happen another time. So the villagers immediately grabbed as many weapons as they could, <laughs> which included machetes, grass knives, which are uh, 
big long steel knife for cutting grass, bows and arrows, probably a few random shotguns and stuff, and as one, raced down the airstrip. Now, you can picture it, can't you? Uh, these two pilots in a plane, just ready to start roaring off up the airstrip with a crowd of people as big as you, running at them with all of the weapons that they could gather, thinking, what is going to happen? Surrounding their plane, these guys, they're terrified, of course. And then the whole village says, where are the criminals? Where are the rascals? Well, there are none. <clears throat> oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> but they were so concerned that their lifeline to the outside world was going to be cut off again. So for that reason, they decided they better just take some action this time. And let me tell you, if there had been any rascals on that plane, their lives would certainly have been in grave danger. Anyway, that's just one of the many stories that we heard as we were serving and uh, I appreciate the support. There's more information out there in the foyer if anyone would like to, uh, to join that uh, support team. We've been working our way through uh, the gospel, not the gospel, through the book of Joshua. Uh, there is gospel in the book of Joshua. Working our way through the book of Joshua and there's some challenges associated with working your way consecutive through, consecutively through a book of the Bible. The challenges are quite diverse, you know, sometimes as you're working your way through a book of the Bible, you run up against some really difficult passages, some tricky doctrine, some twisty kind of theological stuff and you can't avoid it when you're doing what we're doing as we work our way through. And so my strategy generally is to give Matt those passages <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll do the easier ones. <laughs> but there's other challenges as well that are a little bit different. The challenge, uh, which is uh, uh, less obvious perhaps, as is the case this morning, a passage that is so well known, it's a struggle for me to know what to say. You know, we're coming today to the story of the storming of the city of Jericho. What else is there to say about this story that hasn't been said before? It's rather interesting that the story of Jericho uh, and the Battle of Jericho will be found in pretty well every child's storybook of the Bible, isn't it? And yet when you think about it, it's a pretty, uh, pretty nasty story. Now, I don't know about you, I was raised in the era of um, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote and, you know, all the bugs. When I think about those cartoons, my goodness, the violence in them. It's a wonder I've turned out as nice as I have, you know. <laughs> What about this story, the story of Jericho? There's, there's uh, extreme violence in here, something uh, that uh, we sort of just roll over in our story. And it's so well known, if I asked the average person in the church some basic questions, um, you'd be able to answer them straight away. Feel free to call out the answer. You know, there's Jerusalem, what's the other main city? Jericho. Which river did the people of Israel cross just before they got to Jericho? It was Right, how many times did they walk around the city before the walls came tumbling down? Yeah. Hang on a second, I had two answers then. I heard seven and Sam, you said? Thirteen. You've read your Bible. <laughs> when he was a kid. <laughs> because the answer actually is thirteen. You see, the story is so well known, we assume we know some of the answers, but actually it was on the last day, the seventh day, they walked around seven times. They walked around six other times over the preceding six days, and as we all know, six plus seven equals thirteen. So, today, it just might be that we'll uncover some fresh truths from this really, really well-known story. It's actually good for us 
to come to a passage like this because uh, understandably the story has often been made more digestible, simplified if you like and some of the deeper things that there may be in there for us are overlooked. What I'm going to do though is read through uh, the story. Now we're going to read through the whole chapter, it's a fairly long chapter but what I'd like you to do as we read through it is to listen to the story and listen to the cadence of the story, the way the story's speed changes as it goes, particularly after verse 15. And here again, <clears throat> this really familiar story. Let's go through here. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in, uh, no one came out. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry the trumpet in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble advancing the slides, Ivan, you might need to take control there for me, thank you. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it is are to be destroyed, uh, sorry, to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are to be sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury." When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. 
They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out with all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord as anyone who undertakes to rebuild this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations, at the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Well, as we noted last Sunday, despite the fact that the huts of the inhabitants of Jericho had melted in fear at the advance of the Israelites, their hearts were subsequently hardened up as the Israelites faced the city. And so we come to this story which starts off, at least in this chapter, with this statement, the city was locked up, nobody went in, nobody went out. It was a formidable obstacle too. Don't be mistaken by this. The best guess that archaeologists have after a few thousand years is that the walls of the city look something like this, a kind of a double level wall, if you like, a wall that had been built and then an earth berm on which a second wall had been built. So if you were standing looking at it, imagine looking at a wall perhaps four stories high. As you looked at it with that perspective, you would see the first wall and the second wall behind it, an enormous obstacle to try and overcome quite discouraging when you look at it like that and couple with this reality that you remember the time of the year that the Israelites came into uh, this particular part of the story what time of the year was it it was harvest time wasn't it and so it was the time when the people of Jericho would have gathered all of the food and stored their food for the year which tells us that the city would have been really well provisioned It had all of the food that it needed and we know from history that there was a very reliable spring in the city that provided the city with water. So what we're talking about here is a well-fortified city that was well-defended, well-protected and well-provisioned, able to defend itself perhaps for a year, two years, maybe even three years if uh, if they uh, looked after their provisioning in a particularly careful way. Not only that, uh, there were other problems that the Israelites faced because for 40 years, what had the Israelites been doing? They'd been walking around out in the desert, hadn't they? None of them, not a single one of them, had actually been prepared for urban warfare. None of them were skilled in the tactics of overcoming a city. And so you've got this great big army of Israel standing on the outside of this impregnable-looking wall saying, how are we ever going to overcome this? We have no skills, we have no training, we don't even have the equipment that we're going to need to take this well-fortified city. And in a way, the inhabitants of Jericho must have just been sitting there thinking, we've got this, it'll be okay. 
notwithstanding the fact that something rather unusual had happened in that the Israelites had crossed the Jordan, that put the wind up them, that's for sure. But even so, they still trusted in their walls, didn't they? And I guess uh, we might say uh, there's some spiritual application from this too because isn't it true that so often we trust in our own capacity to provide for our needs? Isn't it true that so often we think, you know, we've got this? But one of the realities that we have to face in life and, and those of you who've been through the journey of a struggle or a crisis will know, you know, you can't wall God out forever. At some point in life, you will realise that those provisions that you have, those structures that you have in place will prove inadequate. And it's probably better to realise that sooner rather than later. And although Israel faced a challenge that was certainly beyond them, what we have recorded for us here in the text of Joshua chapter 6 is that uh, this challenge that they faced was not beyond the Lord. For if you have a look at verse 2, you'll see the Lord saying to Joshua, See, I have delivered the king of Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Joshua, meantime, he's standing outside the city when God says this. I've already delivered this city into your hands. It'd be a very fair question to ask, wouldn't it? Yeah, how did you do that? Haven't kind of seen that yet. How's this going to unfold? I wonder if Joshua asked that question. But God said it was going to happen. And God, in that sense, is, uh, is setting the scene for what takes place. And verses 3 to verse 15 is a set of instructions about how this city is to be taken. Now, before I read the passage, I said, take notice of the cadence, the way the, the passage has been written to communicate to us a sense of rhythm or a sense of pace. There's quite a steady cadence in these first few verses. Uh, a steady rhythm, in fact, in the entire campaign. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But it relates to a question that I don't remember ever having really well explained when I was in kids' church all of those years ago. And this is the question, why did God ask the Israelites to walk around that city and around that city and around that city six times over six days? Why seven times on the seventh day? doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? And some of the things that we might see reflected in what's taught in kids' church now, uh, I think I might have seen this on a VeggieTales video one time, you know, the inhabitants of, of Jericho are standing on the wall making fun of these Israelites walking around. What are you doing, you wallies? You, just walk, you think you're going to overcome us by walking around and around? Really? Why did God ask the people to do that? Well, at one level it might be, and I think there's some validity in this, it might be that God was saying to his people, I want you to learn to walk in obedience no matter what that obedience looks like. Does that make sense? I want you to trust me when I ask you to do something, to do it without saying, what's this all about? Just learn to trust me, learn to have faith, learn to be obedient no matter what I ask. Get into the habit of doing what you're told, in other words. And though it might seem rather bizarre, and it certainly must have, uh, that's what I want you to do. I know <clears throat> I had a young guy working for me as an intern once. Um, he, he was terrific. And some years later, he came back into the church. He was still sort of in and out of town. And he came into the church this particular day in the middle of the week carrying his Bible under his arm, which was not unusual, but it was a little bit unusual because I knew that this particular day he'd just been down in the shopping centre. And I thought, well, this could make an interesting conversation. I said to him, Josh, why are you carrying your Bible around today? 
And he said to me, his answer was one that I wasn't expecting, he said, because God told me to. And he went on to explain, he said, I was praying the other day and God said, Josh, I want you to carry your Bible with you for a week. I don't know why God's asked me to do that, but I figure if God's asked me to do that, he must have a reason, even if I don't understand it. So here I am, I'm carrying my Bible around for a week and that's what he did. I don't know whether God had a purpose beyond just learning, uh, for Josh to learn some obedience. I don't know whether God had a divine appointment for Josh where he was going to have the opportunity to open the Bible with someone else. I don't know. But it was good enough for him to say, if God's asked me to do this, then I'm going to do it. And all power to him. Maybe there's something in that for the Israelites too, learning to do what God asked even though it might not make a whole lot of sense. But I wonder whether there might be something else. Now, this is kind of speculative, but I think there might just be something in it. Let me just throw you an idea. But first of all, let me teach you a new word. Who loves English? Okay. That wasn't very encouraging, just let me say. (laughs) You know, there was an English teacher I had in Year 12 who... uh, He said to me, David, when it comes to apostrophes, you are a Philistine. (laughs) And I think I might have shared with you, forgive me if I have, when I came to Teachers College, we had to do a grammar skills test. Have I told you this story? Yeah, failed it three times. But here's a great word for you this morning, it's the word circumambulation. You want to impress someone over lunch today, take this with you and use it, right? Circumambulation. If you know anything about Latin, you'll figure out that there's two Latin words at work here. One of them is the word circumference, so this word's got something to do with going around. And ambulation, uh, think about ambling, walking. Ambulation's the process of walking, right? So circumambulation is the process of walking around or walking around something, If you really want to have fun with some guests over lunch today, you could talk about how pram, the technical word for a pram, is a perambulator. And if you really want to have fun with some folks over lunch today, you could go and nick a pram from one of our families, do a few laps of the car park, and when they say, what did you do at church today? You can say, well, I went out into the car park and I circumambulated with a perambulator. (laughs) And then they'll know that you've totally lost the plot, but at least you'll sound impressive. Now, why am I telling you all of that? Well, actually, it's quite important because in some religious systems, in Buddhism, in Hindu and in Islam, there are practices known as circumambulation. It's the process of, uh, or the belief that there's some efficacy in performing circumambulations around the deity or representations of the deity. Now, I'll translate it, that into plain English. In some religions, they believe that there's something to be gained for the believer by walking around a representation of their God. And doing that, I don't know, one, two, four, five... In fact, there's a photo, I'll show you. Uh, This happens even today as part of the Hajj in Mecca. Because pilgrims will go to Mecca and they'll walk around the black stone, this Kaaba thing, uh, this cube-shaped building, they walk around it in an anti-clockwise direction. How many times do you reckon they might do it? Seven times. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Seven circumambulations of the cube. And so, as a result, some 
uh, some academics look at what's happening here in Joshua chapter 6 and say, ah, look at that, some sort of pagan ritual going on here that the Israelites are involved in, circumambulating around the city that they're going to take. But the Bible doesn't say anything about that. In fact, the Bible hasn't got anything to say about that at all. In fact, I suspect that the reason they uh, were asked by God to circumambulate the city, to walk around the city, was for other reasons. First, to, uh, to teach uh, obedience, but also for another rather interesting reason too that I think we find represented in the text. You see, there's a statement in the New Testament that you will be familiar with, a statement that's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 which says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, we affirm that as truth from the New Testament. We affirm that as truth from the Scripture. The reality is that if God treated me as my sins deserved, I would not be standing here with you this morning. And if God treated you in the manner that your sins deserve, you wouldn't be sitting here this morning either. This place would be empty. But throughout the ages, God has been very patient with his people. And why? Well, this passage tells us why. Because he wants all to come to repentance. He wants all people to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. He wants all people to recognise that there is sin in their hearts. Let's rephrase that in another way. He wants all people to recognise that there are other idols that we put up in the place of God in our lives. There are other things that we let become more important than God and we worship those things. God wants us to repent from that and allow the grace of Christ to be our experience. And he's patient, uh, waiting for that to happen. Was this true of the inhabitants of Jericho? Yes, it was. Have a look at the cadence of this whole story. We know uh, that the, uh, the, uh, the citizens of Jericho had heard what happened way back here 40 years ago when the Israelites crossed the sea, don't we? 40 years ago, there was an opportunity in what they heard about, they may not have witnessed it, but they certainly had heard about it, to recognise the Lord as the one true God. 40 years. There was another occasion, only perhaps a year before, when the Israelites were in the eastern side, on the eastern side of the Jordan, what was more recently known as Transjordan, now in the country of Jordan, uh, when they when they gave a mighty shellacking to um, those kings on the east, Sihon and Og, we know that the people of Jericho heard about that. And how do we know this? Well, because Rahab tells us this. This is reported for us uh, back a chapter or so ago in Joshua chapter 2, where Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Here's the evidence. We have heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, note the last sentence. That's really, really strategic. Because Rahab recognised 
God's uh, witness, his grace and his evidence and she recognised God as the one true God. That was something that the, uh, the inhabitants of Jericho had the opportunity to do too. And so if we talk about the cadence, what we see through this story is God revealing himself 40 years ago, God revealing himself a year ago, coming across the Jordan River only a month or so ago, time and time and time again, God saying, I am the Lord, what are you going to do about this? And as the story keeps on going, the cadence increases, the people walk around the city, you know, we've gone from 40 years to a year, to a month, to a week, to days... Around they go. What was the opportunity in walking around the city? It was for the people of Jericho to say, hey, there's something bigger than us going on here. We need to repent. Six times they had that opportunity. Have you ever thought about that? All through this period of history, with increasing regularity, God is saying, hey, you need to stop and recognise who I am. There's opportunities to repent because the Lord is patient. He longs that none should perish, but all should come to a saving knowledge of who he is. And on the last day, seven times around, it's kind of like God's just ramping up this pace from here to here to here to here to here. Come on, you guys! And note too, really important, we mustn't overlook this, although God is patient and time and time again He says, here's the opportunity, here's the opportunity, take a look at the evidence, see what I'm doing. The day does come and the day will come when God judges. And so the application there for us is not to put off that opportunity, not to allow ourselves just to keep on drifting but to recognise God's grace will come to a place where judgement takes place. Well, as we know, uh, back to the story, for six days the Israelites walked around the city once a day. It would have been interesting to see that too. Have you ever thought about this from a physical point of view? Here's a city that probably had a circumference, there's another one of those words, Um, maximum maybe 800 metres, 1,000 metres around. You get a whole nation around an area that big. It almost probably would make sense that the priests and the ark would have been back in camp before the last people left. This great procession of people. Never mind, that's not all that important to the story. Um, What's important is that the pace changes and the story unfolds. On that seventh day, the people walk around the city seven times. They shout as loudly as they can and the, uh, the city is taken. The best archaeological evidence that we have suggests that the walls of Jericho did not fall inwards and did not fall outwards, which you would typically expect in the case of a siege, where siege ramps are built against a wall or whatever. Something rather strange happened. Our our beloved Old Testament lecturer at BCV, and Sam, you remember old Ted, he just loved this passage, you know, because back in chapter 5, the angel of the Lord said, yeah, here I am with the Lord's army. The angel just came and sat on those walls and down they went. He got so excited at this. You know, the angel pushed the walls down because the evidence says that the walls went down. They didn't go out, they didn't go in, they just went down. And whether it was an angel that did it or whether it was a providential timing of an earthquake which God could use for his purposes, it doesn't matter what the evidence, even the evidence that's being discovered today says is that the walls literally fell down. 
and the Israelites were able to go into that city, uh, take that city, uh, a curse was placed on that city. If we ever preach through 1 Kings chapter 16, we'll come across an incident where someone did try to rebuild the city and, and the curse was realised. The king of Joshua, uh, sorry, the king of Jericho, uh, we uh, safely assume was killed. There's some evidence later in the text that talks about that. And Joshua's fame spread throughout the land. But let's just back up for a few moments to make one last application from this story. And imagine yourself, if you like, as an Israelite foot soldier, just standing there in front of the walls, looking at the city. Can you do that? Just imagine what it must have looked like. High, imposing walls. Walls that appear, at least from where your perspective is, to be totally insurmountable, totally impregnable. And in a sense, I think, uh, the thoughts of a soldier who perhaps had not seen, had not had a vision of what was going to happen, uh, not dissimilar to the kind of thoughts or emotions or feelings that we encounter ourselves from time to time in life, are they? Because all of you have been in this place. I've been in this place. There's something that happens in life. You can describe all sorts of scenarios it could be something like a loss of a job. It could be the death of a spouse. It could be uh, some other kind of crisis. It doesn't have to be a major crisis. Because of our humanity and the way that we kind of work, suddenly this thing looms so large in our vision, it seems like it's impossible to get over it, doesn't it? How am I ever going to manage with what I'm facing? And to be frankly honest with you, there's been times where there's stuff popped up in my life and I've looked at them, it's so much filled my vision that if nuclear war broke out in the Middle East, that wouldn't matter as much as what I'm facing because this is what's in front of me. Have you been there? If you haven't been there, we need to talk later on because I want to know what the secret is. But I'm pretty confident in saying I think we have all been there. We've all faced different things, different scales, different magnitudes, different types of things that have so filled us, filled our vision to totally block out our perspective, uh, to make us wonder how are we going to ever get over these things. And it's not just stuff that's external to us either. It might be something that's happening inside us. Certainly it could be a physical thing. It might be an emotional thing. It might be a mental thing. It might be something inside us like... Um, Issues of unforgiveness or bitterness or an addiction, addictions to pornography or addiction to something else. Stuff that looms so large in our lives, we just don't have the resources, we think, to overcome them. What's the lesson, something we might take from this passage in the face of challenges like this? Well, if we back up just a few verses into Joshua chapter 5, you might remember last week I spoke about the angel who appeared to Joshua just before the campaign to take the city. And although it's not read normally as part of the story of the Battle of Jericho, it really should be. This is one of those occasions where the folks who put the chapter divisions in probably got it wrong in the sense that what happens here with this angel is very, very significant in terms of this story. Because God took Joshua aside, used that angel as his mediator to help reframe this battle away from just being a battle to take a city to a spiritual battle. 
You see, God wanted Joshua to understand that what was going to take place in this battle of Jericho was not just the siege of a city, it actually is a spiritual battle and the Lord is going to fight that battle. And all too often, I think, we stand at those walls that we face, the problems or battles that we look at in our lives, and we see them as physical issues or emotional problems or mental stuff or whatever it might be, and don't consider them to be spiritual as well. And we need to take seriously, I think, the the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 where he says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, no matter what it is that we face there will almost inevitably be some spiritual element to it. Now I need to be a little bit careful about this because there's a difference between understanding a spiritual element in the battle we face and spiritualising stuff. You understand what I'm saying? For instance, I had a friend who had uh, wrestled for, well, I knew him for 14 years with uh, chronic fatigue. Dreadful, dreadful condition that he was in for a lot of that time. And sometimes through that process and we sat and talked and we prayed and we talked and we prayed over many, many years, but he told me of an occasion where a well-meaning Christian would come along and say to him, you know what you need? You just need more faith. You know, this is a spiritual, just have more faith. And this poor guy would say to me, Dave, how can I do that? And I've got all the faith I can. Actually, what was happening there was not, uh, was not helpful. In fact, we call it for what it was, it was spiritual abuse. Because that person was exercising faith and trust in God, there was other stuff going on there as well. So we do need to be very careful when we talk about recognising the spiritual nature of the challenge that we face Uh, without spiritualising them and just kind of making light of them in that way. I've heard people blame the devil for their poor situations, you know. Uh, Satan made me do it. Really? Or is it just your bad decision-making that got you into this pickle? We've got to be careful about that kind of uh, issue. Prayer doesn't usually fix your car if you drive it into a tree. Another illustration I used to use occasionally was, um, you know, we, we uh, repent and ask God's forgiveness and he heals and he restores. But if, if in anger you cut off your hand, it's unlikely that it'll grow back. You have to live with some of the consequences of sin. But we're getting off track. Last Sunday night, Matt spoke on the topic of mental health and made some really helpful observations that there are some spiritual disciplines that we are encouraged to apply into those places as there are also uh, medical helps, uh, counselling, all sorts of other things that we marry together for our well-being. But through the Old Testament and through the New Testament there is a consistent encouragement to us to apply spiritual solutions to any of the battles that we face, to recognise that those battles will include a spiritual dynamic and that there's value, much value in being in the presence of God as Joshua was encouraged to do. You remember the angel said, take off your sandals here, you are on holy ground, be in God's presence, recognise the importance of understanding the dynamic that's going on uh, was the message to Joshua. Here's just a selection of passages and I'll finish with these. Uh, some words of encouragement from 
the scripture. Let's see if we can actually get one of them to come up again. Ivan, you might just need to take over here for a moment. Psalm 55 verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 13, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Matthew chapter 6 verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 and 29, come to me, this is a well-known passage, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 and 7, a passage we were looking at last Sunday night. Don't be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That was the message that God gave to Joshua. It's a battle you're facing as a spiritual battle. Bring it to the Lord. You can be certain that every soldier who witnessed the crashing down of the walls of Jericho knew to whom that action was to be attributed. It was a work of God. And that work of God actually started when Joshua stood in the presence of God and recognised the power that is available, the strength that comes from God, the counsel that God brings, the wisdom that God brings into those places. And that's the invitation for us today too. Uh, we come to communion in a few moments and I'll talk just for a few moments there about Rahab. But as we conclude this part of our service, that's the invitation that God gives to every one of us. No matter what that city is that we might be facing, no matter how big that city might appear to stand before us. In a few moments after our service, we have some folks who are available to pray with you. And I want to encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity to spend some time in prayer with someone else, recognising that there is in anything that we face, no matter what it is in life, a spiritual dynamic that's at work. And God invites us to come and sit in his presence and bring some fresh perspective perhaps to what that is, to understand some of those really significant kind of things that are in place. We had a friend who we worked with in Papua New Guinea, a lady, I think I've told you, whose husband was killed, he was murdered in the most horrible way. And I asked her on one occasion to speak to our student body about how she recovered from that. And she was a great one for using uh, object lessons. She would always teach using material stuff, you know. She'd bake biscuits to teach something. She, on one other occasion, she was teaching her way through the, the Psalms and she wanted to teach about the Psalms of Ascent, you know, and the Israelites were going up the mountain to Zion, up to Jerusalem and they would sing psalms along the way and there were some rascals, some um, outsiders who would yell abuse as they were ascending Zion and so on this particular occasion she said, David, would you mind being one of those crooks? Just hide in the barracks. We had big deep, uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, I know the Papua New Guinean word. Um, drains, that's it. Big deep drains with mud. 
She said, hide in the drain and chuck some mud at them as they're singing. So I did that. They chucked rocks back at me, unfortunately. <laughs> but Grace stood up in front of this, uh, this audience and, uh, in answer to the question, you know, how did you put your life back together in the face of this tragedy that really was of the most horrendous, horrific proportions? And she said, you know, life <clears throat> is like a jigsaw puzzle. And the only way I could put my life back together was to put some of those straight-edge pieces in place first, just like making a jigsaw. What are those straight-edge places? God loves me. Non-negotiable, I know that. God cares for me. God has a plan for me. God is working that plan out. He is a God of grace. He is a God of restoration. These are all the straight-edge pieces that she put back in place. It's good to hear that. It's good to understand that. It's good to understand that God is a God who continues to take us forward, doesn't want to leave us where we are, didn't want her to wallow in that place for the rest of her life but actually grow through that. That's how God works. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe it's appropriate today to pray that through with someone else. Let me invite you to do that and experience the power of God's Holy Spirit as he brings that restoration that you've been looking for, as he opens your eyes perhaps to how you might overcome, how you might move your way through whatever it is that uh, you are challenged by or whatever that faith uh, that uh, you might be facing. We're going to pray. Uh, we're going to ask Wendy to come back and lead us in song and then turn our hearts towards the communion table and the gospel in this passage. Uh, but let me cons- uh, invite you to consider how you might respond this morning too. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for your word that speaks to us, though it is thousands of years old. For we find uh, here, strategically within it, expressions of your love and your grace. We find here within it your call to people to turn, to repent, to know your life. We find here in it affirmations of faith and trust and obedience And we pray that you will help us to walk in those ways too. We recognise there at the very end of the passage it talks about how Joshua's fame spread throughout the land but Joshua was never one to claim the glory or the fame for himself. He was a guy who walked in your ways, who walked obediently before you and we aspire to that too, Lord. To know your guiding, to know your, your personal connection with us, to know you intimately. So, Lord, this morning we pray that you would come upon us, speak to us. May your Holy Spirit open our hearts to those places that have been hardened to you. May your Holy Spirit undo the work that we've done of hardening our hearts, building walls to wall you out. May your Holy Spirit break down our resistance and allow your love to flow freely in our lives, bringing healing and restoration and hope and new life in Christ. Lord Jesus, do your work, we pray. Amen.